The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. This is Ken and I'm sitting next to Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. How are you? Doing great. Good. We are very excited. Today on the program, we have multi-book, and I do mean multi-book author Larry Swedrow, who is definitely one of my heroes in the industry and I would recommend reading all his books, but he has a new one out and the title of the book is... Uh, Investment mistakes even smart investors make, and how to avoid them. And uh, rather than going through our normal procedure, Ethan, we wanted to maximize our time with Larry and kind of right. get right into it. Uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you. Well, Larry, we thought we'd start um, with a little bit of your background. Let you give your background information this time, and um, and then uh, lead in with a little bit about what. You, uh, what's going on with this book? I've I've started to read it and I've gotten about halfway through it and I, I love it already. But thought I'd let you talk about it a little and and then we can go from there. Well, I have about now I hate to say it, 40 years of experience, uh, either managing risk directly for some of the largest uh, financial institutions in the world or advising some of the largest monthly national corporations in the world in the management of risk. I run foreign exchange trading rooms. I've run deposit-taking books. I've been uh, chief credit officer for a major bank and the largest private mortgage uh, company in the United States. Uh, And for the last uh, 15 years, uh, I've been director of research uh, at Buckingham Asset Management, which uh, collectively has about $14 billion of asset management. So I think it's safe to say we're the largest registered investment advisory firm in the country that uh, believes in passively managed funds. And so this book, uh, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors, makes details 77 mistakes that I've learned investors make, uh, mostly because they're human beings and we tend to make mistakes. Uh, Some are behavioral, some are out of ignorance. And uh, it's actually a follow-up to my a previous book I wrote in 2002 called Rational Investing in Irrational Times. That covered just 52 mistakes. Now I'm up to 77. And immediately after the book, I found the 78. So maybe there'll be another book <laughs> in another five or six years with even more mistakes. So. I hope so. Well, would you, would you mind uh, telling us a little bit about your investment philosophy? You mentioned passive, but... Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? And also, with 40 years of experience, I'd love to hear how you developed that philosophy. What led you to come to believe 
what you believe um, about investing? Well, uh, let's uh, probably the easiest way uh, to summarize it. I'll just try to say it in uh, very few words. Uh, but I've written eleven books uh, on the subject, so there's lots to say. Is number point number one is that markets are pretty efficient, uh, not perfectly efficient at pricing, and by that I mean they don't make mistakes too often in pricing securities. And after the cost of trying to generate what's called alpha or outperformance against risk-adjusted benchmarks, very, very few people are successful at it. So so I tell people, unless you look in the mirror and you see Warren Buffett, you're far better off, much more likely to achieve your financial goals. If you focus not on trying to manage returns, which is what active management is all about, but to focus on the things you actually can control, which are simple, number one, the amount of risk you take. Uh, number two, diversifying those risks that you do accept as much as possible. Three, controlling your costs. And four, making your investments highly tax efficient. And the way to, best way to do that typically is to use passively managed funds, index funds, ETFs, or structured portfolios run by people like Dimensional Fund Advisors and Bridgeway. Uh, and some others like Wisdom Tree and Raffi now. These are all passively managed funds, but they're not pure index funds. But there's no stock picking and there's no market timing going on. And then you just have to build a, a globally diversified portfolio. The kind we build owns typically 11,000 stocks, so you don't have any of the idiosyncratic or unique risks to Enron and Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns so you don't blow up because you concentrated your risks. Uh, and then the key is to make sure that you don't take more risk than you have the ability, willingness, or need to take. wrote a whole book about the only God you'll ever need for the right financial plan to help you figure it out. And then once you have a good plan, unfortunately too often it ends up in the trash heap of emotions I like to say greed and envy in bear markets causes people to make lots of mis- uh, in greed and envy in bull markets, sorry, and fear and panic in bear markets causes people to make lots of mistakes. As I said, my book details 77 of them. How I came to believe in this, actually, uh, I'm sort of uh, viewed many by many on Wall Street as sort of the anti-Christ because they make this money <laughs> all p- pitching you know, active management, and I'm telling people, while it's possible to beat the market using active strategies, and anyone who says otherwise is, it simply doesn't know what they're talking about, it's certainly possible. It's also possible to get rich buying lottery tickets. It's just not the prudent approach. Um, but I actually went to school, uh, have an MBA in finance from uh, one of the top universities in the countries, and I graduated first in my class. And I went to school to be a security analyst and portfolio manager, ended up running trading rooms for Citicorp, selling forecasting services, technical analysis services. Hard to find somebody who was maybe more active than I was. Uh, and the belief system, and I learned over the long term and my own experience in reading the literature that uh, really the prudent strategy for investors is to be passive. Uh, Wall Street, you can make lots of money exploiting investors uh, who believe that they can beat the market uh, or, believe, or you can get them believe that you could do so, but for investors, the winning strategy 
uh, is to be a passive investor. So it's ex- my own experiences and reading all of the academic literature, which I try to summarize in my books, putting them in plain English for people. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, would you, I'll give would you one say great that, example, Ken. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I ran trading rooms, uh, and I gave advice to some of the largest companies in the world, and here's the way I used to think. When I got a forecast right or a trade went well, what did I do? I gave myself credit for my brilliant analysis. And when it went wrong, I said, well, it was wrong because of something unexpected, a surprise, something no one could have forecasted. It was bad luck. Well, at the end of the day, you're a genius because you're never wrong. But the odds are just as likely I was lucky in the first place and unlucky in the second. It wasn't that I'm brilliant and then suddenly took a stupid pill. And the the money that the banks make is because they position themselves as middlemen and charging lots of fees. It's not because they're good forecasters. And perhaps uh, one of the great examples of that in a I think it'll appear in my blog post for tomorrow unless something comes along even more important. You know, we just got this news. The Fed's economists, they're saying, given the outlook, they're going to keep interest rates low for, they say, maybe two and a half, three more years. And the evidence says the Fed can't forecast, and neither can anybody else, and therefore you basically should ignore the Fed's forecast. And there's even a quote I'm going to put in there from an ex-Fed economist who says, basically what I just said, there are no good forecasters, including the Fed. Okay. Well, if that's the case, I know you um, work in an advisory capacity with your firm mm-hmm. and, and you're helping other advisors to help individuals. Well, why do people need an advisor? Why, why don't they just put it all in one index fund and be done with it? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I think the... Uh, uh, that I have written 11 books to help people who want to do it on their own. I think the winning strategy is actually pretty simple. Unfortunately, as Warren Buffett said, it's not easy. Lots of people try to invest the Warren Buffett way, and there are very few Warren Buffetts, as we know. Uh, So that's problem one, even if you have all the skill sets. So you understand the state planning, risk management, insurance. You know how stock works. You can explain three-factor models. You understand correlations. You understand, you know, important mathematical concepts like skewness and kurtosis. All of these issues, and let's say you know how to do them and you have the knowledge to choose the best funds and how to determine uh, your own unique ability, willingness, and need to take risk and run a Monte Carlo simulation, even if you could do all those things, that's only what I would call the necessary condition for investment success. The sufficient condition is you not only have to have the right plan, but you have to be able to stay the course and rebalance and adapt your plan as conditions change. And unfortunately, the vast majority of people simply can't do that. When bear markets come, the plans end up in that trash heap of emotions. They panic and sell, even if they had a well-thought-out plan. They can't rebalance, which is what's required. And in bull markets, they get too greedy take on too much risk, make all kinds of mistakes. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone can't do it, but my experience is that there's maybe 1% of the population that could do it really, truly on their own. Okay. Well, 
could we, we? I think we've just got one minute here before uh, we've got to take a break. And I was thinking maybe we could turn our attention to some of the invest. I know there's 77. There's no way we can go through them. That's why we want everyone to buy your book and read it. But I'd love to for you to give us uh, maybe when we come back, we could go through a few of them. Absolutely. You, and the broad um, categories that you've Be happy outlined. to do that. And uh, we could maybe begin with overconfidence, recency, and uh, maybe confusing information with wisdom. And uh, a fourth one might be confusing rapidly growing companies or countries with high returning investments. So there's four suggestions. Great. Well, we'll get right to those when we get back. We're going to take a quick break. We're here with Larry Swedrow. Be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, and we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Uh, your co-host, uh, Ethan Broga, alongside uh, Ken Smith and our special guest, Larry Swedrow. Thanks again for coming on the show today, Larry. My pleasure. Uh, 
just before the break, we were going to tap into some of the some of the bigger mistakes that we want to talk about that are in your new your new book. And uh, which one would you like to to start on first? Well, we could start off with overconfidence, if you like. Sounds good. So, uh, you know, if you ask uh, your listeners, uh, are they better than average drivers? About eighty to ninety percent of them will say yes, and we know that can't be true, right? By definition, only half can be better than average. If you ask them if they're better than average lovers or anything else, 80 to 90 percent say yes. Well, that probably won't hurt them to be overconfident in the driving skills or some of the other things. In fact, it may be good because you feel good about yourself. But if you're overconfident then about your ability to pick stocks, time the market, or identify the few active managers who are going to beat their respective benchmarks, then you're going to end up under-diversifying, you'll have inefficient portfolios, you'll do too much trading, you'll underestimate the downside risks, you'll concentrate risk in risky investments because you know they're not risky, you'll make all kinds of mistakes, and the data on individual investors trying to outperform is terrible. The stocks they buy underperform the stocks they sell, and the more people trade, which I, I would suggest that although I don't have proof of this, the more confident you are, the more likely you are to trade a lot, the worse you do. The people who trade the most underperform the market by 10% a year. And the average investment club, proving more heads are not better than one, underperforms by about 4.5% a year. So that shows you how much overconfidence can cost people. What about these um, these professionals, just guys out there like, uh, say, a Ken Fisher who... Um, you know, one of the value adds that they, that's their pitch, I, is, will they adjust to market cycles and get you in and out? Do they, do they have a track record that, that backs that up or are they just lucky or what, what's the story with guys like that? Well, the first thing you want to do is check the track records and properly adjust for risk. And the evidence that I've seen on Ken Fisher's, uh, returns are not good. And they don't do a good job, in my experience, because I've met many of his ex-clients, is that they don't do a good job at all at tailoring portfolios to the appropriate risk level of the client. They tend to be much more cookie-cutter, depending on you know Ken's view of the world. Uh, but I've seen no evidence that they do a good job of managing money. Okay. So a lot of it might just be hype then. Uh, I would say the vast majority of what you read is typically hype uh, or or results that are presented in a ways that are inappropriate. For example, hedge funds present their returns often or venture capital compare it to the S&P 500, which is, you know, much more liquid security, uh, much more diversified, much less risky, lower standard deviations. Yeah, you know, and a whole slew of other benefits, and that's totally inappropriate. Uh, you need to make sure your investments are, returns are calculated against appropriate benchmarks. So, for example, uh, you don't want to look at a small cap manager and compare them to the S&P, but you might want to compare them to, say, an S&P 600 index or a Fama French small value index. And you, if you're going to look at private equity, Probably the closest public equity, I would say, in, re- in risk, even though it's even certainly less than for private equity, I would look at small value stocks. And by the way, the evidence on private equity is that it significantly underperformed 
the public equity markets for similar risky investments like small value stocks. Do you think the nature of their existence is because they're overconfident, or do you think they realize what what you've been sharing for decades here, um, and they just want to ignore it because they feel it's a better way to make money? It, it, it often confuses me why they continue well, to... Well, I think you've got two sides of the coin here. Why do people invest in venture capital and hedge funds or Bernie Madoff or others? I believe it's for the same reasons, mostly, that people wear Rolex watches. It's, you know, you can buy a Timex that sells for $50 and you get pretty much the same ability to, to tell time. But the Rolex conveys status, success symbols, sophistication, other non-monetary benefits, so people buy Rolexes. It's not to tell time. Well, people want to invest in hedge funds and venture capital funds because they too, they think, convey status. Uh, members in some exclusive club that the hoi polloi can't invest in. Well, my line about that is, Groucho Marx's line applies, I wouldn't join any club that would have me as a member. The evidence on all of these things, hedge funds and venture capital, is not very good on venture capital. On hedge funds, it's abysmal. Uh, the data is so bad that they don't even earn treasury bill returns or at least have a hard time keeping up with them on a risk-adjusted basis. Okay. Now, why do they, why do the purveyors continue? Well, you know, most people won't commit economic suicide without a good push. They make, that's the winning strategy for them. It's the winning strategy for most of the media. It's the winning strategy for Wall Street. They need you to believe that active management's the winning strategy because that's how they get the yachts instead of you. Hmm. All right. Well, I think the next item you were mentioning was uh, recency. Was that? Yeah, was that? exactly. Here, uh, investors uh, act as if they're driving forward and watching the rearview mirror. You do that, you're going to end up with a lot of crashes. And so what investors do is they watch yesterday's winners, whether it's stock, individual stocks or asset classes whatever, or countries, whatever it might be, and they buy that. So a good example would be now you see people rushing the gold when it's $1,700 an ounce. No one wanted it when it was $300, having collapsed 24 years before from over 850 and being stuck there. No one wanted to buy it then, of course. All right? And then they watch, so they end up watching yesterday's winners and buy high. They watch yesterday's losers and then sell low. Buying high and selling low is not too rational a strategy. I think the right strategy, which is much more difficult to execute, of course, is to buy low and sell high. And the way to do that is simply by rebalancing your portfolio. If you're 60% stocks and 40% bonds and you have a 2008 or a 2011, what do you do? Well, you have to buy stocks to get back to 60%. So you're buying after stocks have done poorly, which is exactly the opposite of what most people do. They're panic selling. 2009 and 10, $350 billion came out of the market. Of course, Warren Buffett was buying at that time. All right? And then, of course, after things have rallied, and that's when the money starts to come back, and so investors finally came back into the market at the end, very end of 2010, after the market had recovered. They get it wrong all the time. Rebalancing at least gives you the opportunity 
to buy low and then sell high. Uh, on that note, I, one of the things we see a lot um, is, or the a question that pops up is, hey, well, when we see bad news, we think back to when the uh, the first budget ceiling uh, crisis started, then we had this whole European thing, and and uh, investors are saying, hey, I understand why you guys don't, uh, <laughs> why are we not getting out of the market when the news seems clear? And, and a lot of times the market doesn't just drop one day all at once. It seems to be a very painful process of weeks and sometimes months, and where it seems obvious that people should be getting out. How yeah, do you how, how does that fit into this? Yeah, it's story? always obvious after the fact. Of course, what we forget is the future is written in invisible ink. Uh, uh, you know, so here's uh, actually the seventy eighth mistake, which I would have included in the book if I had thought of it at that time. I just never used this phraseology is they do what I call stage one thinking. The news is bad, therefore stocks must go lower. That's exactly wrong. The market has already gone down because the news is bad. Valuations are low. That means expected returns are high, and that's when you want to be a buyer if you're going to try to time the market. So Warren Buffett advises, he says, don't try to time the market, but if you're going to do it, buy when everyone else is panic selling. And that's what, of course, he does, and that's what one of the reasons he is able to earn high returns. What you have to learn to do to be more like Buffett and be a good investor is to do stage two thinking and understand that bad news generates typically actions by government and central banks, which will be there to hopefully correct the problem. It's not a guarantee. It's exactly what happened in March 2009 when Nouriel Rubini, who had forecasted the bear market, predicted that you know when the S&P was 666 at the bottom, we now know, was going to 400 and people were panicking. I'm sure asking you, why are we still holding? You know, well, the government stimulus programs were enacted. We had tax cuts. The Federal Reserve slashed rates to zero. Then we had QE1. When that wasn't enough, we got QE2. We got bond buying programs. Same things happening in Europe. You're getting government slashing spending, doing things they never would have done if not for the crisis. ECBs cutting rates, lending money to banks at very low rates for three years to avoid liquidity problems, and the markets have recovered. You know, and that's what good investors do. They learn to do stage two thinking, which allows them to keep their heads. They know it's not a guarantee, but in the long run, the odds are in your favor if you buy low when expected returns are high. And then you do the opposite. When everyone else is getting greedy, because you need to rebalance, you're selling when prices have gone up and valuations are higher and therefore expected returns are lower. So just because if we looked at the last 10 years of a, you know, say a U.S. portfolio, it hasn't done great, uh, doesn't mean, because we hear a lot, well, everyone knows, this is something we've heard, everyone knows returns are going to be low in the future. Um, well, why do we know that? You know, my question. Well, why does everyone know that? Well, the because first they... <laughs> rule of thumb is that after periods of poor returns, that's typically when you get periods of good returns. And the reason is prices have come down. That's the reason you have low returns. And low valuations mean high expected returns. Everybody understands that, uh, Ethan, uh, when you talk about bonds. 
bond prices go down, yields are now high, you've got high expected returns. And, of course, the reverse is true. Bond prices go up, you now have low expected returns. Well, that's what happens with stocks. When P.E. ratios collapse, the expected returns are now much higher. Uh, a good example is in the late 90s, everyone wanted to buy stocks because they had done so well. History tells us that if you buy when the P.E. ratio is over 22, the next 10 years, your average returns are less than five. But if you buy after periods of bad performance and the P.E. ratio is less than 10, which it was in March of 2009, then the returns over the next 10 years have averaged 17%. Everyone gets it when you talk about bonds. Somehow, the emotions surrounding the stock market cause them to fail to understand that valuations matter. That's great. Well, I think we're going to have to take a break here in a few seconds. Do you have time to, to stay? I'll stay for a third round, and maybe we can pick up on a couple of other mistakes. Okay, great. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment. And that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. This is Ken, and uh, we're sitting, well, not sitting with, Larry uh, Swedrow. Author Larry Swedrow is on the line with us. We're talking about his new book, Investment Mistakes, Even Smart Investors Make. And uh, we were, Larry, we were just going over a couple of the uh, 77 and would have been 78 mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, you were going to give us at least a couple more. Yeah, I would say one of the most common mistakes I get all the time is, and even Bert Malkiel, professor uh, of economics at, at Princeton and author of A Random Walk Down Wall Street seems to make this one, they confuse rapidly growing companies and rapidly growing countries with high expected return investments. And I mentioned Malkiel not only because he's famous, but because he's been for years recommending investing in China uh, because of its rapid growth, and I'm sure you're, you get questions surrounding that from your clients just as I do. Well, unfortunately for investors, so much of the conventional wisdom they believe about investing is not only wrong, it's completely illogical, and that's true about believing that rapidly growing countries should produce high returns. First, the data shows very clearly that there, there is a relationship between growth of GNP and stock returns, but it turns out it's negative, not positive. Faster-growing countries actually produce lower returns. And a logical way to think about it is if a country is growing faster, then it's probably a safer place to do business, less companies go bankrupt, and therefore stock returns are better, and that means it's a safer place to invest. From that perspective, I mean, you know, the returns to the businesses are high, investments get, you know, the companies get high returns on their assets, but that risk is what's priced. Markets don't price growth rates, they price risk, and the riskier investments must have higher expected returns. We all understand that, but seem to forget it when it comes to countries. The same thing applies, by the way, to companies. Fast-growing companies, meaning their earnings grow fast, actually have much lower returns than value companies that have poorly growing earnings in a relative sense that their value stocks have outperformed growth stocks by about four or five percent a year and that's again because markets price for risk and not growth rates so these countries are in essence uh the ones that do have the rapid growth are like growth companies, and the ones that are, are struggling are kind of like value companies. Exactly. And more risk. I'll give you a bit of data that I think will shock probably both of you, even, even as investment professionals, but certainly will shock your audience. From 1993 through 2011, the Chinese GNP grew basically at double digits, and yet a U.S. investor, dollar-based, investing in Chinese stocks had negative returns. That's what people don't understand is that the beneficiaries of rapidly growing countries are the citizens who benefit by their improvements in their quality of life, their lifestyles, their incomes are rising. It doesn't necessarily translate into great stock returns for a whole variety of reasons. 
makes sense. Now, Larry, I wanted to um, come back from the last segment real quick because it just jogged my my memory. I wanted to ask you, you were mentioning the P.E. ratios. Do you advocate adjusting your allocation to particular stock sectors based on what the P.E. ratios are? Or, uh, well, now what, you get into a little bit more gray area, but I would tell, say that the average investor should not even look at that. It's a very slippery slope because it, you cannot say that a 16 PE is bad and a 14 PE is good. Uh, and therefore, I recommend that investors diversify their portfolios across many asset classes. So if you do happen to get what we might call a bubble in any one asset class, you don't have too much exposure to it. Uh, and you're benefiting from the bubble because you're rebalancing. So when it say U.S. large and small growth stocks did exceptionally well in the 90s, you were then selling them year after year, taking those chips off the table and buying more value stocks so that when 2000 to 2002 hit, when you know the uh, market dropped 50%, value stocks did far better. And in the last decade, a globally diversified portfolio like the ones I recommend in the book 2000 to 2009, while the S&P was losing 1% a year, because it started from such high valuations, the kinds of portfolios that I recommend in my book, and I believe you recommend as well, were earning close to 7% a year. And so, you know, that's the key here. I think investors are far better off just diversifying, sticking with it, because it's a very fine line. You're very prone to make mistakes if you try to time these things. So I would avoid doing it. Think about Alan well, Greenspan who told you, you know, the market was irrationally exuberant. I think it was as early as 94, and the market went on to have five more great years of returns. I think you're better off just diversifying, making sure you don't have too many eggs in what I call one risk basket. Well, thanks for clarifying that. I just wanted to make sure I understood where, where you were coming from. So Yeah, but I would say this. What you should do is change your estimate of all returns when value because valuations matter. So when you have dividend yields, say, of 5% because stock prices are low, you should project higher future returns to stocks than when you have dividend yields of 2%. Uh, or in 99, the, the market dividend yield was 1%. So, you know, you do you should take valuations into account to help you determine what the right asset allocation is, because the only way to you can decide is you must project the returns for your stock portfolio. Otherwise, how do you know whether 60% stocks and 40 bonds will allow you to achieve your goal? The answer is different if you think the market will return, say, 7% a year, which is about what most financial economists now think today. Or if you think at the end of 90, you know, at March of 2009, when valuations were lower, you might have projected higher returns, and you could have gotten by with a lower equity allocation. So you do need to take into account valuations when estimating expected returns. And in that context, then, Larry, because this is something we've discussed quite a bit, uh, is if you take a Monte Carlo, it, it's taking um, some average return, and then it's putting variability around that average return, um, would you adjust then, as you're saying, hey, if we think equities in March of 2009, I mean, we had emerging markets, some of those at seven times earnings, I think, were some of the dimensional mm-hmm. emerging markets funds and very high dividend yields and things like that. 
depending on what your exposures were to value in certain categories, um, it seems like you would come up with a different plan for a different person, um, and particularly based on the time period and where the valuations are when you start. Yeah, I, so, you know, look, I don't know that there's one necessarily exact right way to address the problem. Uh, the way we do it is each year we look at current valuations. We use what's called the Gordon Constant Growth Dividend Discount Model. That's a big mouthful, but fairly simply yeah. it takes the dividend yield, adds in a long-term growth in earnings, adds in inflation expectations, and we assume then that valuations will remain unchanged because we can't forecast that. If you do that, you get a roughly 7% return to the stock market today. We then add in historical risk premiums for all the asset classes, and then we look at your suggested allocation, and we run a Monte Carlo based on that. So obviously, in March of 2009, when valuations were lower, our expectations were for higher returns than they are today, and in March 99. They were, or at the end of 1999, they were a lot lower. So we do adjust that way, but we tend not to adjust our equity allocations by asset class. And so by that I mean if we have a suggested allocation to emerging markets of, say, 10%, we don't adjust it every year for that. We want to pretty much diversify our equity exposure around the globe and not be so much in any one basket and not trying to time these things. Could you say, hey, Larry, I want to adjust my valuations by each asset class? I, I would find it hard to argue against that, but then you would end up possibly overweighting some asset class, have lots of eggs in that one basket. So I, I'd be very cautious about that approach. Okay. Well, I think we've got a, a minute or two. Do we want to start? I think you had one, at least one more mistake out of the book you, you were well, willing to I, share. Well, that one would take a long time, so I'll mention it just briefly. Investors confuse information with wisdom or knowledge that you can use to exploit things. So here's what I say. You know, Jim Cramer comes on TV, and he tells you to buy this stock and avoid that stock, and he gives you 20 good reasons. I tell you, even if he's right in what he's saying about the facts, it's completely irrelevant because it's information and that everyone else has. You just heard it on national TV. You read it in your investment newsletter. Uh, your stockbroker called you. You know you have to understand that if you know it, the smart guys at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley also know it. It's already built into prices, and you shouldn't act. So all you have to do before you ever act on what seems like valuable information is ask, am I the only one who knows it? And that should stop you dead in your tracks because the answer almost certainly will be no. And if it isn't no, just remember what happened to Martha Stewart. <laughs> okay, well, it's, so there's we could talk a little more about that when we, when we get back from the break then? Uh, absolutely. In fact, there's no, a great a sports analogy I think we can use to help your listeners understand more about this concept. Okay. Okay, well, I, I think uh, some of which we got a couple. Sir, okay. Um, I'd love to talk about that, and I, I think we'll have a if we have a little bit of time, ask you just a couple other questions okay. and let you Happy to do tell it. our listeners where they can kind of get your book and and you have a great blog and other things going on. I want to make sure you get to tell everybody about that. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back with Larry Swedro. Mm-hmm. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Ethan and Larry Swedro. And uh, Larry was just sharing a few of the mistakes out of 77 that he's outlined that investors make, um, even smart investors make, and how to avoid them. And going into the break, we were talking about the difference between information and knowledge. And uh, Larry, before you do that, I'd love to give you a chance so we don't, we've got a, a nine-minute segment, a chance um on, on, if you could talk about all the books you have, blogs, anything else that investors, uh, where well, they can reach you. We might need you. more than nine minutes, but I'll try to <laughs> keep it short. Uh, okay. I have four only guides, one on equities, uh, the only guide you'll ever need to winning investment strategy, one on bonds, one on uh, alternative investments, and one on the on, only guide you'll ever need for the right financial plan. So the first three show the evidence. Uh, from academic studies on those subjects. And the last one, the right financial plan, tells you how you can use this information to tailor it to your own personal situation. My two favorite books are Wise Investing Made Simple and Wise Investing Made Simpler. They're collections of short stories, roughly 30 in each of them, that help explain to investors how markets really work, uh, not how they think they work, and taking these difficult concepts of modern portfolio theory and making them easy to understand by using analogies to sports betting, cooking, etc. Um, I also have uh, The Quest for Alpha, which is a fairly short book, about 160 pages or so, which takes all of the evidence and summarizes it uh, on investors' search for alpha, whether it's for mutual funds, pension plans, hedge funds, venture capital, even the field of behavioral finance and individual investors. And it shows basically that the quest for alpha has been about as successful as Sir Galahad's quest for the Holy Grail. Uh, it's possible you can win that game, but the odds are so poor you shouldn't try. And then it shows you a little bit about how to use modern portfolio theory to build the kinds of portfolios we both build 
for our clients. It also talks a bit about how you can find a good advisor, one you can trust. Uh, and then my newest book is this investment mistakes even smart people make. So there's seven, and if you really don't get enough of Swedro, you can check out the other four books. <laughs> and you have a blog, right, Larry? I have a daily blog, which I think your readers uh, and listeners will enjoy. It's at cbsnews.com. It's all about the science of investing, not the noise. So if you're looking for the 10 hot stocks or you know, how the GNP reported numbers should affect your portfolio, you're looking in the wrong place. But if you want to look at, at the research and what the academic approach to investing is, showing you the facts, all common sense, ordinary, everyday English for most people. I think your listeners uh, would really enjoy the blog. You can bookmark it, sign up for an RSS feed, but pretty much every day I post something on the prudent investment strategy and exposing most of what Wall Street has to say as investment pornography. Great. I, I know Ethan and I both check it every day almost. Just about. So. Yeah, it's really good. I, I recommend well, I'm everybody. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Okay, well, we were talking. Was there any other, anything else you've got? Movies coming out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got Tom Cruise ready to sign to play me in um, the biography. But, uh... <laughs> That's good. Uh, uh, there's nothing else. I'd like to let's jump back into this information versus uh, right. knowledge. So here's the analogy that I think. Uh, you know, let's say the Portland Trailblazers, since I know you're up in that area, uh, were playing the Chicago Bulls. You know, Portland's not a great team. The Bulls are the number one team. And, you know, and if you're a sports fan, you know you can't really use that information that the Bulls are a much better team to make money because if you want to bet me on the game, even if I'm not a knowledgeable sports fan, all I have to do is look in the paper and I would see, say, the Bulls are favored by six points. Uh, meaning that I get to add six points to whatever the Portland Trailblazers score is. So even if the Trailblazers lose by four, I win the bet. Well, it turns out that research shows that the point spread is a unbiased estimate of the outcome, meaning that once you include the point spread, while the Bulls are clearly the better team, it's equally likely that you'll win the bet regardless of who you bet on. So investors know, investors who invest in sports betting anyway, know that they can't use the information that Portland is a worse team to make money. No matter how hard they study, that information is known by everybody else, the pros, etc., and it's built into the price. We don't see many people who get rich betting on sports. There may be the Warren Buffett of sports betting, but we know the, the majority of people who get rich betting on sports are the bookies who take the bets well, Las Vegas, it's not the betters themselves. Well, what's the analogy to investing? Well, it's just as easy often to tell the better company as it is to tell the better team. Take Google versus, say, uh, Ford Motor. Well, you know, you want if you can buy Ford Motor at seven times earnings, everyone knows you can't buy Google at seven times earnings. That world doesn't exist any more than thinking you can bet on the Bulls to beat Portland and not give any points. You may have to time to spend 30 times earnings to buy Google. Well, once you do that and adjust for the P.E. ratios, clearly Google's the better company, but you have to pay 30 times earnings for it. Ford Motor, clearly the worst company, only pays seven. 
that difference in P.E. ratios acts exactly like the point spread, equalizing the risk-adjusted odds of investing in those companies. And so if you hear Kramer giving you 42 good reasons to buy this stock, all he's really told you, let's say it's Google, he didn't tell you they have better management, great new products, great balance sheet. He told you they had a better a point guard, a better defensive team, better rebounders, better shooters. That's all he's telling you, in effect, what everyone else already knows, so it has no value. So you don't recommend following Jim Cramer and uh, I wouldn't recommend buying. following Jim Cramer or any talking head on TV who's touting stocks. Uh, their track records are very poor. Uh, active management is highly unlikely to prove successful. You are far better off uh, being a passive investor, diversifying, using index funds. That's what the, all the evidence from hundreds of studies, which I summarize in the Quest for Alpha, demonstrates. Would that, would that apply? management, I say, is the triumph of hype and hope over wisdom and experience. So that would apply to newsletter writers that uh, maybe they're not on TV, but if you're one of the few subscribers, you get those insights. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are good studies on newsletters. I've written about them in my books, and the results from them are incredibly bad. And, and by the way, their strategies have no cost. <laughs> Implementing <laughs> strategies typically does have costs. Right, that's one of the problems with uh, a lot of these. But even before costs, Mark Holbert has done all kinds of studies on newsletters, and the results are extremely poor. There's no persistence of, of success. So this year's winning newsletter is just as likely to be next year's cosmic dust. Well, you make a good point, Larry. It's hard to argue with you. Well, you can always argue, but I've got the facts on my side. <laughs> Fortunately, you have the facts on your side. That's um, always helps. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if I thought active management was the winning strategy, it's exactly how I'd be investing. I'd be investing our clients $14 billion, but the evidence has convinced me and lots of other people otherwise. So you, you put your personal money in, in, the, in the passive strategy. You don't just well, go I, out. I, not only that, but I'd recommend to your listeners, if you're talking to an advisor, you shouldn't invest your money with them if they won't show you their financial statement, their custodian brokerage account, to demonstrate they're investing in exactly the same vehicles you are. Now, their asset allocation should likely be different because they have a different ability, willingness, and need to take risk. But ask somebody at Goldman Sachs, who's your advisor, and see if they're invested in the same securities they're telling you to invest in. I'll bet the odds are pretty low that that's true, and I'd be willing to bet that you're invested in the same funds that you're recommending to your clients. Well, thank you very, very much for coming on, Larry. It's my pleasure. That's Happy to come back of... anytime. Great, thank we, you. We, we've got 73 more mistakes to cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll definitely take you up on that. Thank you, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week, and we'll... Be back next week. Take care. Thank you. 
We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.